Welcome to the Keeney Interviews. Through this series, you will meet leading practitioners from the water sector and hear their stories. Together, we will address water challenges and discuss how best to face them. Keeney is the Malaysian word for current, and this initiative promotes the flow of ideas within the water sector. Starting out, and today's Kinney interview is with Tony Weber. Tony is the national lead for water modeling for Alluvium Consulting in Australia. And in today's Kinney interview, we discuss working with three very different countries, starting with China, uh, then we move to India, and then we discuss working in Myanmar. Tony works with these three countries to support their water modeling projects also to support river basin planning efforts and improved water governance. And Tony is very generous with his stories and his insights in working with these countries. And uh, I hope that with that, you will enjoy this interview with Tony Weber from Alluvium Consulting. But I, I would be remiss not mention that he's also a visiting science at CSIRO for the Basin Futures team and a fellow with the Australian National University for their Integrated Catchment Assessment and Management Center. Um, with that, my name is Karen Delfo, and I invite you to enjoy this interview with Tony Weber. Excellent. Great. Well, thank you so much, Tony, for taking the time to speak with me uh, about the work that you've been doing across the Indo-Pacific. And um, I think it would be great to just get started if you tell us a little bit about your background and, um, and what you're up to. Um, so my name's Tony Weber. Um, I um, am a national lead for water uh, modelling in uh, Alluvium Consulting uh, in Australia. Um, I'm also a visiting scientist at CSIRO, the Basin Futures team, and um, uh, also a visiting fellow at the Australian National University in their um, Integrated Catchment Assessment and Management Centre. So um, uh, I've been involved in the water industry for uh, nearly 30 years now um, across Australia, mostly focused in southeast Queensland, but doing a lot of work across Australia, mostly focused in southeast Queensland, but doing a lot of work across Australia, overseas in um, the UK, France, um, China, Thailand, um, Taiwan, Korea, yes, Malaysia, <laughs> many places, so. Fantastic. Um, like that's a quite a breadth of experience and also a, a number of really interesting hats that you get to wear at the same time at present. Uh, keeps you busy, I can imagine. Yes, very much. So we were going to start our conversation by speaking about China and speaking about the, the work that you've been doing in China and the process of development in China. Uh, so if you want yep. to just jump in, that would be great. Yeah, so um, the work that uh, I've been involved in in China is sort of uh, twofold. Um, one is really looking at the management of their river basins, uh, especially the application of technologies uh, like um, uh, basin modelling, water resource modelling, uh, but also in terms of general uh, management planning, the right strategy, uh, strategic approaches to take, um, how to integrate data and tools into um, the decision processes, and also, uh, you know, the lessons to learn from uh, other countries like Australia and uh, the US and uh, and uh, Europe especially. Um, so it's it's quite an interesting environment which to work. They 
are very much a country that will absorb a lot of information. Um, they also want to do it themselves. They don't, uh, while they like to have foreign advice, they often want to uh, be seen to be doing the work themselves, which is really important. But also, I think um, what's really interesting for me is that uh, they are extremely smart and um, there's a lot of intellectual horsepower in, in China and I really enjoy their ability to um, take what they learn very quickly and apply it and, and come up with new and innovative approaches. Can you, is it possible that you could provide some examples of, uh, or like a story that illustrates how that played out? Yeah, well, um, one of the interesting ones, uh, I've uh, been working a lot with a couple of research and design um, institutes, which are a sort of um, a bit like a government-owned consulting agency, but they're, they're typically associated with universities um, and academia. Um, and uh, in those areas, uh, one of the things we started to look at was urban stormwater management and how to incorporate uh, what we call in Australia water sensitive urban design approaches or low impact design approaches. One of the things that they quickly saw was that they had some technologies to allow them to build models by uh, developing um, uh, drones that could fly over uh, urban areas very quickly and map them and define their catchments. And um, that really came about because I'd been working with them to show them how the computer models worked and how we actually subdivided areas into su into hydrologic subcatchments. And so they took that, ran with it, and came up with this sort of new technological approach um, to define that uh, a lot quicker. And then they've taken that information and now they have this amazing concept of the sponge city, which I think I feel like it takes that approach of uh, water sensitive urban design almost to the next level. So I can see how yes. yeah, bringing that data in and bringing in their technologies and their modeling really would contribute to an innovative way of thinking that's really suitable for their context. Yeah, most definitely. The, the sponge city approach um, is sort of the other area that I've been um, uh, quite heavily involved in, uh, in the sort of south cent central parts of, uh, of China in, in uh, Hunan province. Um, and uh, in, in those areas, one of the things that is really driving them at the moment is probably not um, the water quality or the the sustainability approach, but flooding. Uh, flooding is a significant issue, and um, they've got a huge legacy now that they've created by uh, having rampant development with very little control. So now they've got all these issues around flash flooding and so on, and so they have to come up with more radical approaches in order to address it. And and I think they really relish that challenge. They can see how they've got to that situation, but they can also see how they can get out of it. Um, whether it comes to pass or not, I'll be very interested. Uh, the Chinese are very good at engineering. They're, they're, they're quite excellent at it. One of the problems that they have is actually trying to ensure consistent approaches uh, across the city. So integration, I think, is still going to be a bit of a challenge um, in uh, applying some of these uh, sponge city technologies. But that being said, They've got a lot of money to throw at it and they've got a lot of intellectual horsepower to throw at it. So, you know, if, if it's going to work anywhere, it'll be there. 
And by integration, are you talking about integration of just different urban systems like water, wastewater, electricity, or and, and then just land management? Oh, both, I think. Like everything, I guess. Putting yeah, yeah, all it's, it's certainly... Yeah, a spon- you know, sponge cities, uh, if you want to to really, you know, apply the sponge city approach, it's got to be considered as a system. You know, it's an urban urban ecology, I suppose, and, and I know that term gets used a, a lot, but, but really you've got to think about the whole urban system as an ecosystem and there's lots of feedback loops and, you know, the uses of water and wastewater, um, stormwater management and uh, all, all impact upon each other. They're all interrelated. So if you think about how the infrastructure and the planning can come together across all of those aspects... Um, then I think, you know, that's where the success lies. But like I say, that, you know, the Chinese uh, hierarchy of governance um, is quite strong and um, it's still, you know, knowledge is power. So sharing that information and having people working together, I think, is is going to be challenging. But again, I think they also have the ability to, to do it if they want to. Yeah, I'm wondering if you would be able to c- comment related to that point you just made about just governance in general and how um, you see governance shifting in China in order to be able to turn these projects into successful endeavors. Yeah, I, I think um, there are a range of uh, governance levels. Um, obviously, uh, there's the uh, provincial governments uh, for, you know, in, in very similar to, I suppose, state agencies here. There's obviously the, the national government. And the national government has been very good at setting uh, fairly clear directions. You know, like um, Xi Jinping has, has said that, you know, sponge cities are the way they want to go. He's thrown a lot of resources at it. But I think um, now the, the struggle is going to that next level and actually ensuring that the provincial governments have the ability and the skills to set or to, to take that direction and run with it and also then seeing it um, roll down to the actual city um, uh, city level uh, governance levels, I suppose, or the city level um, uh, structures that are in place to implement these things. And the I think the struggle that I see is that um, uh, the people who are at these various levels need a lot of support, uh, and I'm not sure whether those that support is there for them all the time. They rely on these design institutes to provide some of that support, and a lot of times uh, my observations are these design institutes um, are fairly uh, run, you know, with fairly junior staff that haven't had uh, good worldly experience in a lot of cases, and so. They are they are very skilled, but they probably don't have enough experience in knowing how to influence some of these areas of governance. And then all the way, I would think, down to the community level and having that strong level of community buy-in and see how it all kind of fits together because it's going to be, obviously, I mean, it's probably going to, in the long term, definitely benefit the community, but in the short term, there is going to be a lot of disturbance for them. So having them buy-in, understand, trust and support each of the levels of governance to see this transition through is also going to be, it's going to be an interesting process because we're talking about a lot of people. Yeah, I, it's, it's an interesting one. I think the, the 
you know, our, our concept in Australia or in, in, in a, a democratic country is that you have to seek that buy-in, you have to obtain that buy-in, and we actively go out to do that. Um, certainly in China being a part of a, a communist country, um, you know, there is much less uh, of that occurring. But what you do sen- then see is, you know, um, community angst um, and community complaints and so on because they're not part of the process, they've not bought into the process. And, you know, I, I don't know how that fits with the the, um, the national government's approaches, but at some stage I think there really does need to be better engagement with those who are going to be impacted by um, decisions around sponge cities or around better water resource management and so on. And uh, I'm not quite sure how that fits within their political sphere. Yeah, they, China has such an interesting past track record of displacing whole communities in order for the national priorities to be able to be realized in terms of yes. particular hydropower yep. development. And um, yep. so this is like just the the next step of it, I guess. And it'll be very interesting yeah, to see yeah. Yeah. I'm fascinated by it because, you know, if they want to do something, they just do it. Um, and they don't have the same issues that we have in developed countries around uh, what I call the NIMBY and, and NOTE um, issues, you know, not in my backyard and not over there either um, type problems. And sometimes I see that as being very efficient and wish that we had it sometimes in, in our society. But then I also think about the the freedoms and the ability to uh, preserve a particular way of life may not be uh, present in China, and so a lot gets lost at the at the behest of of development or or you know new approaches. I suppose. Yeah, it's it will be very interesting to watch how that plays out over the next however long 10, 20, 30 years. Because changing yeah, the city is going to yeah. be a huge process. So really exciting. It, well, I think what's interesting in China is that what's happened for people is that their their lifestyles have improved mostly. Most people's lifestyles have improved markedly over the last, you know, 15 to 20 years. And therefore, I think a lot of them are quite happy and satisfied with uh, what's happened so far, but as they become more wealthy, as they have more disposable income, more leisure time, I wonder whether they will then start to um, have the time to think more about where they are in their societies and what they might want to do or what, you know, whether they're happy with their, their the way their cities are being managed, the issues that are being caused by the previous developments and those sorts of things. And so getting buy-in might be a very good way of actually managing that. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting because the other two countries that we're going to speak about, as you're saying that, I'm thinking about India and I'm thinking about Myanmar and I'm thinking yes. about that whole other context, cultural context uh, and development context uh, that those countries are operating in. So maybe this would be a great segue to speak a bit about India and the work that you've yep. been doing in India. Yep. 
Um, so my work in India has been relatively limited. Um, uh, we've been working on a, a river, ba river basin planning project uh, with AWP. Um, and uh, what's been very interesting uh, in that is understanding the importance of, um, uh, I suppose, the hierarchies of governance in in India. It's a very much a bureaucratic uh, country, um, the the levels of uh, uh, state, national, and local governments are, are quite um, set. Uh, the way people progress through them is quite well established. It's very much uh, based on seniority and um, perhaps not as much on on merit. Um, and uh, what you see then in those in those organisations, I think, is that they've become quite protective of their knowledge, of their power, and um, it's difficult to see them cooperating uh, for the common good. They tend to cooperate to maximise the benefits of their agency or their state or, or uh, their city. But um, I'll be curious to see how well cross-jurisdictional um, uh, planning can actually work um, in India. It, it will require a paradigm shift, I think, um, to some extent. I have some ideas, but I'm wondering where do you think the root of this kind of um, hierarchical structure within the governance, in particular of water, might come from? Because it's... You have... Um, yeah. Yeah, it, <laughs> Well, I, I definitely think it's a relic of, of uh, British colonial rule um, and setting up a range of structures. But I, I think the Indians have excelled in in setting up layers of government um, or, or governance uh, in order to both um, protect uh, the 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 states themselves and the and the cities to some extent, you know, protect the powers of those agencies, um, but also to uh, ensure that there's pretty much a a job for everyone as well in in a lot of those government agencies. You know, they they're jobs for life, and and I think with the the huge population they've got, and 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 this is something I see in China too that. Yeah, there's a lot of job creation in those countries. You know, there's a lot of different levels of jobs that we probably don't have. We've removed a lot of that and, you know, people have moved on to other other jobs, but that's because we have much lower population um, densities, I suppose. So I, I, I wonder how Indian uh, uh, government uh, at all of the levels is going to be able to move from something that is so bureaucratically entrenched and entrenched around um, uh, seniority of, of staff to one that is a little bit more dynamic and, and flexible and able to, you know, make decisions on the fly, I suppose. Particularly as this river basin modelling project progresses and a lot of the data comes in and decisions are yep. going to have to be made. Um, so yep. can you speak about maybe some of the... Uh, benefits of the the work that you've been doing a little bit more specifically about the modeling and um, and how it's hoping to serve in terms of more broadly I guess river basin management in India or the parts of India that you're focusing on. 
Yeah, I, look, the, the thing that I've been very impressed about in going to India is um, their ability to uh, embrace technology and get it implemented very quickly. So um, they've got a range of programs around data collection. Um, they've been able to get quite a bit of funding from the World Bank and, and so on in order to get a lot of uh, data collection activities underway. I think that one of the big problems is going to be maintenance of those things. They've been able to get them in place and get some structures in place, but um, the observations and, and information that was passed to us when we were over there um, has been that, you know, keeping that going is struggling and there's been quite a bit of um, uh, not fraud, but um, issues around the quality of some of the products that have been um, bought. You know, there's a lot of people capitalising on the on the money that's there rather than actually um, delivering a quality output. So I think one of the, the struggles they're going to have is not so much embracing technology, but actually making that technology work for them. The models themselves, I think, you know, there's a lot of support coming from Australia through eWater and, and other agencies, um, ourselves as well, uh, around developing uh, models uh, for these agencies. And I think that that's quite important to build um, system understanding. But I, I must admit I am worried that the focus has become very much around the tools themselves rather than necessarily how that fits into a broader planning process. You know, how do you take these modelling outputs and put them into forms and, and functions that are actually going to help improve decision making? Um, it's nice to have models, but you've got to understand what are the questions that you want to answer with these tools and how best are they set up in order to do that? You know, what data do they need? How often does they need to be improved? Who needs to have custodianship of them? All of that sort of stuff, I don't think has been thought about, but they've got models. And so, you know, they've they've made some fairly big leaps. Where they go to from here, I think, is 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 our role is is going to be showing them, okay, you've got these tools. How do you use them? What's the best way? Who's going to ensure that the quality of the tools is going to be sufficient to support your decisions and so on? Yeah, I always I really think a lot about data and who has the data, who interprets the data, who's working with the model. Always really gives you a different output depending on the kind of perspective and, and the way that you manipul manipulate and use that useful data. Um, yeah. And having the guidance to be able to work with that sort of level of data and those models over the long term, um, I yes. can imagine it's going to be tremendous for really being able to implement the sorts of changes that you'd hope to see happen. Uh, should be quite a process. I, I, I mean, I hope so. But, um, you know, the the... The observations that I've had so far is it's it's a very chaotic environment in which to work. Um, it's it's difficult to organise uh, and plan something out in advance. Timeframes change regularly, staff change regularly. Um, getting continuity, I think, is going to be a struggle uh, for a while in India, um, unless there becomes a, a central agency that, that has the responsibility for ensuring that basin planning occurs and also has the power to implement. And, uh, and I think that that will be 
um, something that you know might have to be looked at over the next few years as they move into this interbasin planning or the well, sorry inter, inter uh, jurisdictional basin planning. So you you you're proposing that potentially one of the ways to address some of the challenges that they're facing is to have a dedicated institution looking at this specific inter jurisdictional basin planning issue for the long yeah. term that could potentially help really resolve some of the constant flux and chaos that you've witnessed uh, in your time there. Yeah. I'm thinking about uh, some of the new, I don't know, like centers of excellence and things like that that seem to be popping up around India um, and sort of different initiatives, these sort of collaborative initiatives that are bringing people together. They're not as broad as being national, national uh, interjurisdictional basic planning, but it seems like there are a lot of like small little centers of excellence, for example, that are popping up or little collaborative. Yeah. Um, but how can all these work together and, and whether yes. or not these are going <laughs> to be have the leadership yeah. and be able to stand the test of time and with this chaotic environment, it's, it's an interesting question. Yeah. It is. I, I, it's one that I am very curious about because, um, you know, anybody is anybody in the water industry is, seems to be in India at the moment and everybody's doing, trying to do their own thing and set up their own arrangements and so on. And, you know, even within in Australia, um, even today, we were talking about, um, you know, two different programs um, that were trying to set up workshops and uh, for the same people, uh, one in India and one in Australia, and they'd actually been timetabled to occur at the same time. And, you know, like it's even even as a country, as a single country trying to assist um, uh, the Indian market where we're finding difficulty in coordination. Um, so imagine when you've got, you know, 20 or 30 or 40 countries in there all trying to do their own bit, all, you know, you know, trying to be, um, the good, the good citizens as well, the good global citizens, but who's coordinating that? Who's actually ensuring that there's no duplication of effort, that it's integrated, that it's actually going to lead to, um, you know, a, a, a well-coordinated approach in terms of improving their ability to manage their natural resources. So effectively, they're, as opposed to, I, I would imagine, some other countries that have some sort of coordinating mechanism or some sort of lead institutional governance uh, system in place in order to bring people together who are operating within that country in India. It's just so huge. It's so populated. Yeah. There's so much going yeah. on. It's just geographically so diverse that it's just yeah. patchwork everywhere. Is that is that really the case? That's right. Yeah, that's right. And and um, the other thing with um, India is that the water is so contentious um, between states. Uh, the use and management of, of water is, is a very, very, very political issue. It's always in the paper. Um, so, you know, the the ability to have one organisation uh, to be able to handle all of that uh, and coordinate all of that, I think, is going to be quite difficult. But, you know, we had similar issues in Australia with um, each of the, the states um, wanting to do their own uh, basin plans and basin management um, of the one system uh, and until an authority was set up to manage the whole system together and coordinate all of that, um, you know, we didn't really have a good um, whole of basin approach. So, you know, there, there are certainly examples of how to do it and uh, uh, I think India's still got a long way to go though. 
But it sounds like there's a a really interesting area of potential for maybe donor support or international aid support to help start to have this conversation. So that's that's kind of exciting in a sense because. Oh, um, very. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. because to think it's, that there's so much resources and knowledge being poured in that with a yep. little bit of coordination there could really be something that's going to be transformative for that. That's um, it's kind of exciting. But I would imagine yep. that working with that very uh, complicated and slightly chaotic system is going to take a lot of time to set something up that could be truly effective at the same time. So, yeah. yeah. Um, Look, I, I, I find the Indian environment quite fascinating because I think um, there's a lot of opportunity to do some really good work. They're, they're very um, astute at, uh, you know, using and applying technology. There's a large amount of change, again, in that country. Um, but I think there's also issues around um, equity of access to water, you know, the, the, the how do you change uh, long inbred um, uh, uh, cultural norms around the use of water and so on that, you know, the, the religious and, and um, uh, you know, other, other cultural um, uh, influences on, on how the governance should work and all of that. I think, you know, that it's, it's quite fascinating to see how you could work with that. And, you know, I think it does, it will take a global effort. Um, I, you know, the, the Indians themselves have the ability to deliver this, but I think, you know, we should also have a, um, uh, a commitment to supporting them in a way that, you know, shows them the, the lessons that we've learned through the mistakes that we've made so that they can hopefully avoid some of them. Excellent. And so the work that you're doing in India continues. Um, it's not yes. wrapped up yes. yet. And hopefully no. there will be the opportunity to take some of these ideas and look at how to um, think about next stages of the work that you're doing because it sounds very exciting. Yeah. Well, it, it's sort of, um, if I look at the work that we've been doing in Myanmar, I think the Myanmar approach actually gives us a good guide on on how things could possibly work in India. Um, they have a single agency um, uh, to manage um, or to do basin planning or basin management for the whole of the Arawati system. Um, so... You know, they've thought about some of these issues and, and they are starting at it quite fresh. Maybe they're, because their political environment was, um, you know, up until recently uh, quite, um, uh, well, not dictatorial, but, you know, quite a military regime, obviously, and and um, a lot of those, uh, uh, what would you call, Bureaucratic structures perhaps haven't been in place for very long, so they they've got a, a big opportunity there to to perhaps do something different um, and have set up an agency that has that responsibility for managing a whole basin and you know that's that's something that's actually very encouraging. Great, and so let's take a few steps back, and I'm hoping you just speak a little bit about the work that you are doing in Myanmar, how long that's been going on for, and what you're seeing emerging out of that. 
Yeah, um, so I was involved um, uh, initially in a, a fairly large concerted data collection effort. Um, a lot of work had been undertaken around setting up monitoring programs and so on, and um, and data had been collected over some time, but it hadn't actually been well collated and input in forms that were able to be used by um, the basin planners and the basin managers and modelers. Um, so the first job was to, to really try and put all that together. Um, and that's led on to another set of packages of work um, that others have been doing around setting up models, um, setting up some planning approaches. And um, recently our, uh, some of our staff were in there doing another AWP project around trying to look at bringing all that together in uh, an ecosystem service uh, valuation type approach that takes a lot of that information and modeling and starts to think about how does this system work um, as, as a, you know, both a, a uh, what would you call it? A, uh, you know, it provides a lot of services that are probably not valued. So how do we bring those services into uh, a context that allows them to be accounted for in management? Um, you know, food provision, uh, fuel provision is really interesting. A lot of people in the basin use um, timber for fuel and uh, for cooking and, and heating and so on. So how do you... Uh, how do you bring that subsistence type uh, uh, living a lifestyle into an into an approach that's really based around market use and productivity of water resources and so on? So we've sort of looked at it at both ends of the scale, and it's been really uh, uh, Myanmar is extremely fascinating for me. I, I think it's a fantastic place to understand how to manage a, a basin which pretty much occupies you know 70 or 80 percent of the country yeah you had you and i had spoken before and you had described myanmar as being a, a country that is truly on the cusp of development and um i think that's yes a, yeah yes. it's a, can you expand a little bit more on that i i think it's just interesting to provide a little bit more context about um What's been going on in Myanmar? Uh, I mean, most most of us who've been reading the news and have been following uh, the, the course of that country have an idea, but it's good to just kind of, from the perspective of somebody who's been there and been working there, if yep. you can articulate a little bit about the process that they've gone through over this very, very recent time period of, of emergence almost and of... Um, yes. Yeah. yeah. I, I see. That's what I, I've certainly observed. Um working with with the the people of Myanmar and and you know traveling to the country is that uh, all of a sudden they they've they've the world has opened up to them um you know they've been a, an organization or uh, sorry a country that um, was um, you know living under a fairly uh, dictatorial regime um, that all of a sudden is is reducing quickly um, but there's a lot of uh, Western influence starting to appear. Um, you see the occasional McDonald's sign or, um, uh, you know, advertising for uh, the latest um, pair of jeans or, you know, telephones, or mobile phones and so on. And it reminded me a lot of China in that you've seen, I've seen areas of China developing very quickly where they are a relative backwater, um, but then you start to see, you know, an interest being taken in these countries. Oh, there's a new market for us to sell our goods. You know, the Western countries will think there's a new market to sell our goods. So, you know, all of a sudden you start to see these things blossoming and 
and Myanmar has the appearance of some of that. But what's really interesting is there's so much heritage there. Um, the, the British colonial rule, again, has, is very prevalent in the, the architecture and perhaps some of the governance structures and, and um, some of the cultural norms that are in, in, the, in the country. Um, so it'll be very interesting to see how it develops. Yes, um, I just lost my train of thought. Sorry, <laughs> I, was, I was just I, I have like almost in this picture of Myanmar in my mind. Um, yeah, uh, yeah. I, th I think the the colonial the colonial aspect is really interesting because you've seen that colonial aspect play out in India, and you're seeing it play out yes. in a different way in Myanmar because where India went from a colonial rule to independence, Myanmar on the cusp of its independence, had the military step in, dominated yep. the, the landscape for 40 years and yes. and shut down all intellectual thought, shut, shut down research and attempted to basically brainwash a whole population. But it's a population yep. that has this tremendous tremendous roots in, in the Buddhist culture, in their own yes. sense of tradition. And, and now they have this opportunity to open up. You have a let's call it a democratic system that's come into place. Um, yep. And and you have probably also a number of different countries that have decided that they just want to jump in and be on the bandwagon, whether it's from a commercial perspective or from a, an aid perspective. So yep. this institution yep. has been set up to be able to effectively attempt to coordinate um, the aid that's coming into Myanmar. And it, yep. it represents something that's probably really going to support that country in the long term. But where you have all this aid coming in, what, what really, I guess, is just particularly interesting is you have almost a capacity gap. And then you have, at a deeper level, like a, a survival gap. You have a livelihoods gap yes. that needs yes. to be addressed. Yep. Yep. And, yep. Um, and it's, you know, you're imposing ecosystem valuation, which is a fantastic concept, but is it the right time? Does it even make sense with some of the other livelihoods priorities that need to be addressed first and foremost? And yeah. even even the context of Myanmar with the central coordinating body is also a country that has a lot of institutional fragmentation in terms of water management. Yep. So it's, yep. it's just such an interesting space, I think. And um, maybe just speaking more specifically about the work that you guys have been doing there, that Alluvium's been doing yeah. there, and how that's contributing yep. to addressing some of these really interesting challenges um, that have emerged in Myanmar as, as over the last couple of years. It'd be really interesting to hear about. Yeah, well, um, the guys who, who sort of came back um, last week uh, from working over there, um, what they were really um, involved in is this, this ecosystem services evaluation or understanding the value of of the uh, Irrawaddy Basin. You know, what is the value of that basin to Myanmar? And that's, you know, that's a fairly um, generic concept. But when you think of what is value uh, to the people who live in the basin, what is the value to the the you know the states the the cities who are on the banks of of the Irrawaddy Basin, and what is the value to the country if it stays as it is, or if it changes in the future? 
um, as the country develops, there's going to be more, much more greater demand for energy. So where does that energy come from? Do they look at hydropower in this in that basin? If they do, what happens to things like agricultural production, fisheries, um, the ecosystems that are currently providing uh, subsistence living for people? And, you know, the the use of an ecosystem service valuation approach, what really that does is actually gives people an understanding of what the value of that basin is to a whole range of different people in, you know, who depend on it. And and I think, you know, the the is it is it the right time to do that? I don't know. I don't know. It's a really interesting question. But now that you actually do understand that, what do you do with that information? How do you use it in a way that is actually going to maintain that value and improve it? Um, you know, and and I I I think the the having some of the tools that they've got, having the information that they've got, now allows them to think a little bit about that. Are they putting the the cart before the horse? Maybe, maybe, but. A lot of times, there's no rules around this. You know, we haven't, it, we, the whole approach of understanding the value of a system um, is relatively new science. If we had that, you know, a hundred years ago, when we were starting a, down a pathway of basin management, what, how would our approaches have changed? Could our approaches have been significantly different? Probably. And so I think now the interest is going to be, how do we use this information in a way that improves our ability to manage the basin? And, and you know, I think there's a lot of opportunity to do that. Um, we've probably got the right information there. Like you say, there's good coordination of um, some of the aid. We've got a good agency in the uh, AARBM uh, team to, to help take that and run with it, obviously with support from, from various agencies around the world. But... I think maybe the structure's there, maybe some of the information's there. I don't know if we've actually thought about how it's best going to be implemented within, you know, the culture of, of and, and the political environment of Myanmar. Um, and that's that, that, I think, is something that nobody's really thought too hard about yet. Uh, in, in your description, I'm, I'm thinking about other previous interviews that I've had and I'm thinking about these processes of forecasting and backcasting that have been used particularly yes. yeah, within this sort of food, energy, water nexus. Because what I'm hearing is that there's this real opportunity to take that integrated perspective, to really look at yes. it holistically and then maybe do some forecasting. Okay, where do we want to yes. go with this? What would that look like? Here's the data that's available. Yep. What do these scenarios mean? Uh, or yep. backcasting. This is where we want to go. This is our shared vision. This is what we see as being the ideal. Okay, how do we step back and get there? And kind of working through those both of those processes at these different levels of governance could be uh, quite an amazing process. <laughs> uh, that's really... Yeah. And reflecting yeah. back to say, look, if, if these tools had been available, if the science had been available for, say, Australia or for any of these other countries... Um, where if when they were at the space where they're really deciding, okay, how are we going to move forward? Um, how tremendous that could have been! It's um, oh yes, well, it gives yeah. me goosebumps. Yeah. I think <laughs> it's, a, it's it's a really exciting I, space. Yeah, um, I, I I totally agree. I think you know the 
the ability to understand where they've come from, uh, I think, is really important. So, you know, how has the system changed with um, uh, a fairly, um, you know, uncoordinated or, or lack of, of, of an integrated uh, basin planning approach? But also, I think what's really missing in a lot of this is is what you were saying around where are we going to go? What is our future pathway going to be? What values do we want for our system? Do we understand those values? Have we articulated a vision for the future? You know, and then with the tools, with the the understanding, with the information um, that we've got. How do we map out the pathway to, to achieve those values or those visions? Um, th that's missing in pretty much everywhere I go around the world, actually. Um, having a clear vision around what it is you want to achieve and knowing the pathway of getting there, I think, you know, perhaps that's an opportunity in, in Myanmar is to actually do that well. I mean, visioning is, is so difficult, and I would think also in the context of Myanmar that has had forced blinders put on everybody for such a long time, yes. having to, yes. to be able to let go of those blinders and really think big and think long term. It's, yeah. it's, it's like creating neural pathways, I would imagine, yes. that have yeah. been forcibly shut down over the 40 year regime. So that, that has started to happen, but enabling that to really flourish i can imagine would be um it's going to be a big process yeah it's going to be huge um i i think uh you know the, talking with a lot of the people there um uh, dr nini who's in charge you know she, she's she's got a very strong passion around the cultural and spiritual connections of people to um the the river and the basin and and you know it's a it's a such a spiritual country as as you know and and I think that one of the the possible advantages there is that people now understand the the connections. They understand those connections well. They're willing to recognise them. I, I don't know enough about the political structures to understand whether people like Dr Nini and others have the um, amount of positional power they need in order to get the the planning to occur in the way that it needs to and so that that's something i think that we probably don't quite understand enough about yet and you know i'm sure there are others who do but um in our space in our environment if we're going to look at an integrated approach we do need to understand that social political environment well in order to make sure that we can design programs that are going to, to work you know i think Part of that in my conversations with her has also been a process of really um, bringing that science and those ways of thinking as a, an educational tool to make that accessible for people who otherwise haven't really been thinking yeah. about it for yeah. so long because yeah. they've had other things to do. <laughs> um, and yeah, that, that's yeah, a really exciting yeah. process as well. How do, you, how do you guide that knowledge into a governmental system effectively and um yeah, yeah yeah and how do you engage people in that discussion when you know for years they've been told don't worry about that that's not your business you know stay out of it you know we'll, we'll look after you we'll look after the country for you you know so now she wants to get people engaged in that process and how best do you do it when it's not 
a cultural norm. It's like you say, you've got to find new neural pathways in order to get that to occur. Well, it's going to be an interesting uh, place to be working at over the next few years. And um, uh, I know. I that, hope so. Yeah, hope so. I know yeah. that right at this moment we're speaking today, what is it, October 26th, and the yep. uh, WLE. Waterland and Environment Mekong Forum is taking place in Yangon right now. So there's right right now happening um, sort of a knowledge sharing initiative across the Mekong. Yep. And in addition, yep. the Asia Pacific Water Forum will be taking place in December. Uh, so there yep. is a lot of knowledge that's coming in and, and hopefully that will be captured and shared and tapped into by the people who are really looking to broaden their horizons and be able to engage in this space. So there's a yeah. lot going yep. on. It's very exciting. It is, it is. You know, and, and I think, um, you know, we've got a lot of ability to help Myanmar, um, uh, you know, sort of give them the support they need. You know, we, we can't go in there and, and make the decision for them. They, they've got to be able to, to, you know, have the capacity and the resources in order to, to get the, you know, a better way of managing their, their basins in place. But, what we've really got to be careful of is that we don't just jump in when the money's there and then walk away when it disappears. You know, how do we ensure that there's ongoing support, that um, they're not, it's not just a, a fire and forget approach, which is something that I've seen quite often in countries like, like Myanmar. Um, it's happened in India, it's happened in, in China, it's happened in, in um, Thailand as well, you know, and, and, how do we ensure that there's ongoing support for those countries? How do we set up communities of practice so that we can learn from each other and support each other, you know, even when there's not a whole lot of aid money around? And just even more broadly, I know there's been conversations um, in the broader field of international development and water. It's about how do we listen and not talk? How do we yep. hear what people have to say in terms of their needs and priorities and not just bring our little paradigm and shove it on them. Exactly. You know? Exactly. Yeah. How do we understand their context? Yeah. You know, we come in with our paradigms and our context around basin management and around water resource management. How do we understand their context and, and then tailor our understanding to their needs? You know, it's, it's, that that what I that's why I love my job. It's it's completely fascinating every day. Yes, water water management is a is a great career path, as I tell <laughs> many people who are excited about doing environmental work um, more broadly. I say check out water management because it's just <laughs> it's um it's a great career path. Um, okay, so. I'm just wondering if, if you want to speak anything in terms of uh, sort of next steps. I think we've covered most of that, but anything else you'd like to say about the work that's happening in Myanmar um, before we just kind of move to a general wrap-up? Yeah, um, I, look, I I think overall, again, it's a bit like India. I was quite fascinated to see already the the Dutch and the Danish and and um, you know Australia and the US. They're they're all in there already, starting to you know try and um, I suppose sell their knowledge, sell their wares, um, and I just hope that we can do it in a coordinated fashion that we think about the bigger picture here and and we don't just throw money uh, at the problem and and hope that that will solve it that we actually think seriously around how do we best 
help uh, a country like Myanmar who's starting to to look at how their future in a serious way how do we help them best you know move move to a, a sustainable pathway or a, you know a, a, a future that's actually going to support their people rather than just exploit them yeah and also I think speaking about the spiritual and cultural values recognizing those values as yeah. part of the broader ecosystem as well and yes um, yeah. and not just saying well the value is the you know the dollar amount or whatever it is and and yep. no but there's there's such deeper values that are at play and yep. needing needing to really bring those in to the conversation at the earliest stage great so looking across these three countries um that we've just discussed um i, I just wonder if you have any general comments or any sort of um any reflections based on having worked across these and how these three interplay because there's definitely overlaps happening but they're also just so unique in terms of their context um, yeah definitely yeah <laughs> um look uh, uh, i find each one of them a very fascinating place uh, places to work um ultimately it's come down to people um and my i suppose i've, I've got some good experience with the people of both china and myanmar not so much india and that's mostly because i've had um, limited engagement in india so far but um, certainly in the end all of this comes down to people and if you understand the you know the the drivers for people wanting to make change um, if you understand those people you understand what motivates them why they want something different um, that to me is the most fundamental thing that we can do don't think about bringing in um, our technologies our knowledge and that it's somehow better than what they've already got think about what we've learnt by doing by using our tools by having this knowledge what has it taught us about how best to to manage systems and how can we show people um you know the best ways to to move to negotiate some of those problems that we've identified and how you know how to build their resilience to be able to to deal with those things that are inevitably going to occur in terms of you know mismanagement or or you know wrong information or whatever how best do, do we move around that um, and support them to to sort of make a <laughs> a positive outcome you know yeah it's true um, really taking into account their 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 priorities, their incentives, their ex what's existing for them in terms of their reality, as well as their intentions, um, yeah. and realizing those might be quite different than the ones that we have or that we think that they have, um, and recognizing yeah. that and mapping that very broadly before really s stepping into anything can have tremendous benefit. I think in terms of really providing true and lasting support. It's, um, yeah, it's a great point. you know. It, everywhere um, that I've been involved in in um, modelling, in management, um, planning, uh, strategic, um, you know, uh, direction setting, the ones that have been most successful are the ones where there's been uh, people who 
are willing to listen, people who will learn from um, what has gone before, but have also got a very clear um, direction around where they want to be. And you know, working with those people, I've worked with some really fantastic people in 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 all of these countries, and. Ultimately, the more I can support them, the more that I can learn from them um, and the more that I can help them understand the knowledge that I've been able to gain, you know, by being in the industry over 30 years. To me, that's that's what I really want to keep doing um, is working with the people, understanding the people and, and helping them in any way that I can. Excellent. I'm wondering if you have any resources or any books that people who are really excited about the work that you're doing and would like to learn more, both from the technical and also the sort of values and um, and the approach perspective that we've discussed, if there's any resources that you could share for people. Yeah. Yeah, there's a there's a few out there at the moment. We're working on a um, a, a planning planning guide um, uh, to sort of build on the knowledge that we've gained um, through you know a hundred years of basin planning in Australia. So we're sort of trying to distill that into into a, a more simple um, user guide, I suppose. And you know, obviously that's um, developed at the moment. Um, it's it's being developed for India, but it's based on our ex Australian experience. But um, that will be quite useful for people to understand the path that we've trod. You know, the, this is the, the story of our journey um, and uh, we haven't got it right all the time. We've made some fairly big mistakes, but we've learned from those and, and you know, the guide should give us give an understanding of, you know, how to, to walk through that journey, uh, what's important and, and, and what you need to look out for. So um, that'll be coming out hopefully uh, early next year. Um, a lot of what uh, I've learnt, a lot of what I've um, understood, I suppose, has come really around observing the system that you live in or that you're working with. Sorry. Um, you know, how is that system working? Do you understand its complexities? Do you understand its nuances? Do you understand how people are interacting with it and, and how it's going to, um, change in the future? Um, through development, through climate, through um, you know, productivity, through you know, changing um, governments and so on. I think that to me, you know, that that's the resource. The resource is out there. You just need to look at it. You need to, to be observant uh, and then try and understand why it's doing what it's doing. And, you know, that's that's how I've learned, I suppose. That's that's the resources. The resources are, are there when you fly over them. You know, if you ever want to think about a catchment, have a look at a river when you fly over it and understand how complex that system is to try and build a model of or to, you know, to capture um, its response. And, and then as soon as you start to understand that complexity, you start to appreciate how that system is going to work. You can build that understanding. And, and to me, that's that's the most important resource you can have. Yeah, it's it's an interesting point to really try and take every bit of knowledge that comes in and see how it fits within a systems thinking or complexity perspective to be yeah. able to really engage with that in a different way. And, um, and, yep. and it's almost like, again, it's a neural pathway thing. It's like training your brain <laughs> to, to, yeah, to yeah. just open up to that 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 complexity and, and embrace that and yep. work with that. It's great. Yep. 
Great. But, but also, you know, get out there when it's raining, get out there when there's a flood, understand how that's impacted people, understand what it is about, you know, the information that you need in order to better manage that. You know, I always tell all my staff to get out there and kick the dirt. You know, if you're going to build a model of a catchment, drive through it, talk to the people in it, understand how it's working. You know, you can't get that from sitting at a desk and building a model or compiling some data. You need to get out there. You need to touch it. You need to feel it. You need to experience it in order to be able to start to build an understanding. And to be honest, you've the understanding that you gain is only a small proportion of what is actually needed. So you need to work with others in order to get a better appreciation and a better understanding of how the system's going to work. Um, before we just wrap it up, is there anything else that you'd like to add or discuss before we close? Oh, no, I think I've probably said more, much more than I needed to, but anyway. Uh, I think it's great. And I think that there's also an opportunity once the book comes out to maybe do a follow-up interview and and discuss sort of the learnings in that process because that sounds like, frankly, a really interesting um, bit of literature that it would be nice to kind of pick apart and make accessible through this format. Yeah, yeah, no, it'd be good. That'd be excellent. Great. Tony, thank you so much for your time. It's really been a pleasure. Keeney is an initiative of the Australian Water Partnership and the International Water Centre Alumni Network. Keeney connects water managers and shares knowledge throughout the Asia-Pacific. Visit our website at keeney.org.au for more information and for videos, articles, news and more.